Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. John, why are we on the verge of a government shutdown? We're on the verge of a government shutdown because the current Republican Party, which controls the House, is not built to govern. Fundamentally, the uh, Republican Party or the parts of the Republican Party that um, are driving the train right now, they're angry at the modern world. Government has to oversee the United States in the 21st century. The Republican Party, the, the, the pieces of it that are angriest, are not reconciled to the modern world. And that comes out particularly with respect to budget issues. There's no coherent approach to dealing with budget issues. There's no realism about what the real budget issues are. And therefore, it, it's sort of the equivalent of the uh, old man uh, screaming at the clouds kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> that's what they want to do, and, and they're going to do it. That's John Harwood, a veteran of CNBC, The New York Times, and CNN. And beginning next month, he's the host of Bedeviled, a podcast about American democracy from Duke University, uh, where he's a distinguished fellow at the Polis Center for Politics. We're also joined by Abigail Tracy, national political reporter for Vanity Fair. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. You can hear that this week we're talking about the shutdown stupidity. We're going inside what's happening in the halls of Congress and all the chaos that's unfolding. So, Abby, you've been on Capitol Hill. You've been chasing down these lawmakers. Kevin McCarthy simply unable to corral the hard right house GOP. What's going to happen at the end of this month? I mean, you talk to pretty much any lawmaker on Hill and there's sort of just an acceptance, reluctant though it might be, but an acceptance that there will be a shutdown. I think when we're talking about this group, these kind of rogue Republicans that are stopping everything, this is what they're aiming toward. And when you talk to them and you have conversations with them, they don't even articulate what they are seeking, what they want. You know, it's kind of this ever-changing list of demands and nothing will satisfy them. I think that's just the overarching thing that has become clear, you know, not just in this current situation, but just from the start, from the speaker battle, this has just been what this group of Republicans is doing, just making demands, shifting the goalposts, but nothing is going to placate them. And really we're just on our way toward a government shutdown. You know, it's 
it's pretty depressing on the Hill right now. It's depressing because real, normal, average people suffer as a result of this. And I noticed recently, it was one day on C-SPAN where uh, there was a lawmaker taking calls from from voters. And there were real life, normal voters calling in saying, I'm a government employee. I'm going to suffer. I'm not going to be able to pay my bills as a result of this. Hi, Congressman. I had a question for you. Um, if the government shuts down, are you guys still going to be being paid throughout the shutdown? Because I work for the federal government, and I really can't afford the shutdown right now. Like, stuff's too expensive for me. I'm paying almost $400 a week for four kids, and I can't, I can't afford that, man. And yet, it does seem like, Abby, there's a sense of um, just resignation. that This is definitely going to happen. Is, is there a path to, to avoid it? Well, we saw an attempt at a path forward fail. You know, you had a group of some of the House Freedom Caucus members and, you know, the more centrist group called like Main Street members who did craft up a deal um, of sorts. And McCarthy pulled the vote on it, pulled debate on it because the numbers just weren't there. And that was Mm. really sort of a reasonable attempt at something that would have been, um, just for clarity, that deal absolutely would have been dead on arrival in the democratically controlled Senate and, you know, Joe Biden's desk. But there was an effort of compromise and, you know, an effort to try to craft something and it still failed. And so Mm. it's trying, but this band of Republicans are just tanking everything and they have no interest in legislating or governing at this point. And that is really why we're just headed for a shutdown. John, is there any such thing as accountability for the the lawmakers who you described as nihilists who, you know, who don't want to govern, don't want to legislate, just want to burn it all down? Well, it depends on what you mean by accountability. There's accountability for the Republican Party when we have an election. What they're doing will hurt the Republican Party in the election, so that will be a form of accountability. That may not touch them because <laughs> they are elected in districts that like what they're doing. And where they're, because of the nature of the electorate in their districts, they're not vulnerable to being uh, kicked out. They are vulnerable to uh, being um, chastised and, and when it, if it really gets to it, punished by their leadership. But they also, because of the narrowness of the House majority, they've got a lot of leverage over the leadership. So again, there's a fundamental difference between the Republican and the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is built to govern. They care about governing. They care about making government work. The Republican Party is under the control of people who were mad. And the, the uh, budget issues become a metaphor for that. You know, they throw out the big number of the national debt. You know, we're $30 trillion in debt. That's not really what their issue is. They don't really want to do anything about the debt because it, if, if it were their issue, then they would focus on big entitlement programs. They focus on the need to raise taxes, to have more revenue. But instead, they, they focus on sort of narrow parts of the budget that, that actually represent ways the country is changing because it involves programs to, to accommodate the United States to the modern world. Let's say, you know, Biden's green energy incentives, for example. They're, they're mad at all that stuff, but that stuff is a very small part of the budget. So you can rail on that all day long but you reach limits of what you can actually cut. And even if you cut what you want to cut, you're not going to make a a huge dent in that $30 trillion in debt. My point is that's not their issue. They're mad. John, you make them sound like children. (laughs) Well, they are. I mean, let's take the small number of people who 
are the loudest and most vocal. People like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and a few others. They're not serious people. They're not mature grown-ups. In some sense, they're they're seeking ego gratification out of politics. They want people to notice them. You know, they're on television. They have podcasts or whatever, but they're not built to do what politicians have to do to make government work. That is to make the trade-offs, to compromise with people with different views. That's not what they're about. Abby, you interviewed Gates recently. You've been chasing these lawmakers. Do they admit to what John is saying? Do they admit, yeah, we're just mad. We just want to stop anything. Yeah. Yeah, they do, really. And, you know, you have a conversation with them and it's the way in which they talk about the funding bill or a potential government shutdown is as though it's not a real thing that affects real people. The way that they talk about it is sort of framed as a personal vendetta toward Kevin McCarthy. And like really what they do when you talk to them, like when I do have a conversation with Gates, the way he frames it is like, Kevin McCarthy went back on the deal that he made when he was speaker, and this is their payback for it. Like that is the way in which they frame it. They're not talking about the actual government shutting down, the ways in which it's going to affect people's paychecks, lives, all of the above. It really is this game that they're playing where they are just angry. Let's listen to Gates in his own words, because I think we can hear that anger very vividly. I rise today to serve notice. Mr. Speaker, you are out of compliance with the agreement that allowed you to assume this role. The path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you into immediate total compliance or remove you pursuant to a motion to vacate the chair. We have had no vote on term limits or on balanced budgets as the agreement demanded and required. There's been no full release of the January 6th tapes. As you promised, there has been insufficient accountability for the Biden crime family. And instead of cutting spending to raise the debt limit, you relied on budgetary gimmicks and rescissions so that you ultimately ended up serving as the valet to underwrite Biden's debt and advance his spending agenda. Abby, he does have arguments to make, but most of them fall flat when they're actually scrutinized at all, right? Right, right. And and when you do have conversations with these individuals, they, they're talking points. They don't have actual solutions. They're simply just getting in the way. And I think that's the real issue. The Republicans have historically you know, positioned themselves as anti-government uh, in a variety of ways. So should we ever be surprised when there are these government shutdown attempts by Republicans? Not in the current situation. I mean, the traditional way these debates have played out over the long view of our history is, you know, anti-government means less and pro-government means more. So, you, so you've got a spectrum, less or more. These are people who um, are not ready to reconcile themselves with a functioning government at all, um, because that doesn't allow them to express the frustration and anger of their constituents. And a mature... <laughs> politician understands that you you make demands that are commensurate with your ability to achieve them, with the political leverage that you have. And so if you say, I, I hate Social Security, and I was elected to Congress, and I want to eliminate Social Security, and the other side will say, that's ridiculous, people support Social Security, you don't then look at that thing and say, well, compromise the middle, we'll cut it in half. No because the market won't bear that. Mm. And so you don't make a demand that's so crazy that is, is way out of proportion to your actual political power. 
These people are even a step further than that in that they don't even have actual demands. They <laughs> couldn't come up with a demand if you said, you, you be the king and you write the budget. They couldn't do it because they don't, they don't know what that answer would be. They're not capable of making the mature trade-off choices that grown-ups make. Well, then we are heading toward a government shutdown. And there are a couple other big events coming up on the political calendar. I want to talk with you both about the impeachment inquiry and the next GOP debate in just a minute. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with Abigail Tracy and John Harwood. Uh, both of you uh, used to be guests on my old CNN program, Reliable Sources. I, I think, Abby, you were on, you know, in the Trump era. We were talking about impeachments. Well, here we are again. Uh, House Republicans plan to hold their first impeachment inquiry into President Biden uh, next week. The first official hearing is September 28th. But how official is this really? And how much of this is just about Kevin McCarthy, who we were talking about before the break, just trying to placate those uh, rebellious uh, members of his conference. A lot. Uh, you know, I think when we're looking at this situation and what happened, you know, when he came out first day back at the August recess, announced this inquiry into Biden. Really on the Hill, you know, the consensus among Republicans I spoke with, staffers I spoke with, Democrats I spoke with, was really that this was, you know, trying to throw a shiny object at the far right of his party that's really getting in the way of these spending deal negotiations, you know, trying to placate them, trying to just give them something so that they might, you know, back off a little bit in this uh, spending fight. And the reality is, is they don't care. It did nothing. It didn't change uh, the dynamics at all between him and sort of this fringe kind of rogue group with in his caucus. And frankly, the reality, he kind of gave it away in the fact that he didn't hold a vote, which is something that he said earlier that he would do were he to right. go down this road. And he didn't. And what that really tells you is he didn't have the votes. Like it's not even fully backed by enough members of his caucus at this point to really go down this road. And just the fact that he deviated from that path tells you that, you know, he was trying to achieve something different and really the support isn't necessarily there for an impeachment inquiry at this time. Well, here's how McCarthy framed it. Of course, he was asked by reporters, why are you doing this without voting? Here's part of what he said. Very quickly, how do you justify this impeachment inquiry without holding a full House vote? Oh, easily, because um, Nancy Pelosi changed the rules in the president. But let's walk through why. And let's walk through what an impeachment inquiry is, okay? An impeachment inquiry is simply empowering the House to a greater level to get the documents they need to answer a question. So what it is, is how do you answer a question? Now, first of all, what is the question? Well, John Harwood, you've been a Washington correspondent for decades. You covered the George H.W. Bush administration for The Wall Street Journal. I mean, is is he accurately describing the impeachment process? No, of course not. Uh, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy is trying to survive day to day. 
the words that come out of his mouth don't mean much beyond what he needs to do to get over that day. And so, uh, you're making me feel book, bad for him, John. You're making me feel sorry for him. <laughs> well, look, he, he has a very difficult job. He doesn't cover himself in glory, but for example, when we had this debt limit fight a few months ago, the shocking thing about the debt limit was that it was resolved in a reasonably normal way with a spending cut deal that was, in fact, proportional to the power that both sides held. Unfortunately for Kevin McCarthy, that really made angry the people that we're talking about. And McCarthy is unable to contain them. Um, at some point, with impeachment, like with the budget uh, shutdown, the heat gets so high that McCarthy will have to accommodate Democrats in order to get something normal, reasonable passed. There's a, a painful process we have to go through with fallout for government workers and uh, fallout for other people in the path of this. We have to go through that before we get to the point where they do what is mature, normal, grown up. <laughs> Abby, does that sound right to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what's going to happen now, and I think John really laid it out, is if McCarthy wants to get something done, something that could actually, you know, fix this problem, make it through the Senate and make it, you know, to Joe Biden's desk and get a signature on it, he's going to need help of Democrats again. And the reality and sort of what this group of, um, you know, holdouts or uh, just like rabble rousers, however you want to characterize them, what's going to happen is they really are ready and prepared to move forward with a motion to vacate and try to remove him as speaker. I just think that is the writing on the wall. And that is really the direction this whole thing is going to go. Hmm. How do you see a government shutdown impacting the presidential election, if at all? Like when I watch cable news and I hear questions like that, I usually cringe because things that happen a year out tend not to matter at the end of the day in a very real way. But could this be different for any reason? This is just my view on it. I just think that the Republicans, you know, are being so immature that this blowback is just not going to hit Joe Biden. It's not going to hit Democrats like McCarthy and the Republicans are really going to own any government shutdown because it's so obviously just this very small group of very loud Republicans that are taking, you know, the country down this path, in my opinion. John, what's your read? I think, Brian, it it will have an impact on the election. I don't know how large an impact, but the fundamentally Biden will make the election in 2024 about reasonable, normal governance versus extremist craziness. And anything that reinforces the impression of extremist craziness will help him. We have mm -hmm. a history of this uh, played out in different ways. Bill Clinton was helped in 1996 by the fact that Newt Gingrich uh, and Republicans in Congress forced a shutdown as they were attempting to cut popular entitlement programs. Mm. They've now learned, uh, and, and this was reinforced later when George W. Bush was president, that that's probably not a smart thing to try to do. So they haven't really tried to do it since then. Mm. But they, when the Tea Party came along and forced a debt crisis in 2011, that was the beginning of uh, Barack Obama's comeback from a lot of political difficulty because he was able mm. to play off these extremists and they're trying to roll back the clock on the 21st century. It helped him. This will, in the same way, 
help Joe Biden. The the only question is it it's sort of it's become such a customary thing that we expect Republicans to do this. I don't know how much it will change what people already think. But there's no doubt everyone knows where this is coming from. This is not like, oh, who's at fault? Democrats or Republicans? No, everybody knows it's coming from the Republican side. And, you know, how much of how much of that is already baked into people's political uh, you know, choices? That's a little harder to say. Are you sure everybody knows? I mean, is the press part of the problem here? Uh, is is this situation laid out as bluntly uh, on, on TV or or uh, in the newspapers or on the Web as bluntly as you're describing it? No, uh, but <laughs> it, it, it's a little bit easier. You know, one of the one of the things about journalism is the the um, the longer you've been doing something, the more you recognize patterns in what's happening. And the more you, if you're, if you're somebody like me, you feel impelled to express that. Nobody disagrees on what the actual facts are. Everybody knows where this is coming from. Mm. And I am uh, free to this point in my life to say it more bluntly than some other people would. <laughs> I do love that. That's why I wanted to have you on, John. Uh, speaking of that, being freed, uh, you and I both left CNN last year around the same time. Uh, I want to ask you about that and about the next GOP debate in just a moment. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter speaking with Abigail Tracy, who's been covering all this Capitol Hill chaos for Vanity Fair, and John Harwood, a veteran Washington correspondent uh, who was with CNN uh, back in the days I was there uh, until last year. Well, I, I bring that up because uh, back in the day when Donald Trump was still a, a, a new sensational story on the political landscape, you co-moderated a GOP primary debate. Uh, this was on CNBC. And I was curious for your perspective now that we are about to see the second GOP debate of the season. This is going to be next Wednesday, the 27th. It's going to be on Fox Business and Fox News. Um, what is it like in that moderator chair? What are you actually trying to accomplish? And, and then let's talk about what it means that Trump is not going again. Televised debates in the presidential race hmm. become huge marketing opportunities for television network to, uh, sh to draw a big audience, to showcase the people who are on their air to try to get people to click on their channel after the debate is over. That, that's an institutional fact about debates. Um, the, those debates in 2015 took place at a time when the uh, 
nihilism, the, the, the real governing difficulty of the Republican Party was becoming more and more apparent. And that produces a difficulty in trying to do what we think of as a normal political conversation. Mm-hmm. Because in a, in, a, in a normal debate, you talk to people and, you know, politicians engage in hyperbole and they stretch the truth and all that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, we were accustomed to people not saying stuff that's complete bullshit. Okay, <laughs> so Donald Trump was the leading Republican candidate and everything out of his mouth was bullshit. And we faced not just us, but other networks too, faced the challenge of, well, how do you deal with that? Many people yeah. thought he was just going to melt away. Um, we went, uh, me in particular, went uh, fairly uh, hard at him in the debate. And what we found was that because the people that he was speaking for are were such uh, a flaming hot core of the Republican Party, other candidates jumped to his defense, and and, and, uh-huh. and there was a huge backlash against that on the behalf of Trump supporters, but also the party more broadly. And it is a challenge for moderators now in how do you have a rational conversation with the Republican presidential candidates when they're saying things that you know are preposterous. So, for example, mm-hmm. we all know that Donald Trump lost the election. And we all know what happened on January 6th. Republican candidates are constrained by the people whose votes they're seeking from speaking the truth on that. Well, if you're a moderator, you can't just accept statements that are just, they're false from candidates, but that's what they're going to say. So it's a difficult challenge for moderators who are connected to reality, who don't want to just pander to the audience, to have a conversation with those people. It's not easy. Well, viewers could see you wrestling with this in real time, John. Uh, Back in 2015, you said to Trump on stage, is this a comic book version of a campaign? And I remember you got criticized for that afterwards. Let's play the clip. Let's be honest. (laughs) Is this a comic book version of a presidential campaign? It's not a comic book. And it's not a very nicely asked question the way you say that. I guess I'm wondering, John, almost a decade later, do you feel vindicated in that question? Yes. Um, (laughs) And and because... You know, I've I've seen that little metaphor repeated over and over and over again in the years since then. Oh, interesting. Because the things that he says are so cartoonishly outlandish, right? And But at the time I remember media critics trashed you. Yes. Yeah, they did, because that sounded like something that was out of bounds for a moderator. To me, it was an honest way of going at him because he, he would say, for example, I'm going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. And I'm going to send the 11 million illegal immigrants who are in the United States home. I'm going to send those people home. Well, those are ridiculous statements. <laughs> I know they're ridiculous statements. And he is seeking votes by asserting that they were true. So how do you handle that? I thought that and, and and I will say this this didn't work. I thought it would be useful to um, uh, in a in using a little uh, humor mockery whatever to underscore the ridiculousness of these statements. <laughs> uh, and I thought that would be more 
constructive than saying, well, how are you going to make Mexico pay for it? Or how are you going to get those 11 people, million people out of the country as if it was a plausible idea? It was not a plausible idea. And Mexico paying for the wall was not a plausible idea. And so uh, it did, it wasn't successful. No one's approach was able to expose the uh, craziness of the things that Donald Trump said in the campaign in ways that had an impact on him because he got the nomination and he won the election. But I don't regret trying to do that because as somebody who was trying to uh, bring reality to the American political conversation, that was a an attempt to do that. Yeah. And we saw with the first debate this season that Trump's absence changes everything, changes everything about the conversation. Um, although many of the candidates were trying to appeal both to Trump and to his voters. So, Abby, with Trump skipping this second debate, you know, once again, deciding not to participate and he's holding some counter event instead. What does that do? Does it just make the debate, you know, truly just a VP debate? I don't know. I, I think, you know, it was so interesting to watch the last one and not have him be there. And I agree that, you know, it did change the dynamic of the debate. But in so many ways, I still felt like Trump was there. He still was the topic. Um, his presence was still felt on that stage. And I think particularly when you look at the way in which these other candidates twist themselves into these bizarre like arguments or or things to try to appeal to his base, try not to upset his base. And, you know, the, the way that they talk about election integrity in January 6th, it's just like they're warping themselves so clearly because there is a recognition of his continuing grip on the party and the voters mm. that they're seeking to appeal to. So yes, him not being there was, it did feel different, you know, watching it unfold. But I just felt as though he so completely corrupted the party that even individuals trying to run against him are falling in line, you know, behind him, behind his ridiculousness, mm. behind his rhetoric and adopting it and copying it. And so I think he is there. I don't feel as though his counter programming ever has been as effective, however, as he thinks it's going to be. Like, I, I just agree, think, yeah. you know, there's a lot of hype that he puts out there about, you know, I'll be doing this or I'll be talking to, you know, Tucker Carlson or all these things. And I just feel like it never actually really cuts through as much as Donald Trump wants it to cut through, but that's just mm. my opinion. I do think there is something interesting though, given, you know, this event in particular with what's going on with the UAW strike and, you know, being in Detroit. I've seen criticism actually t toward Biden and on the Democratic side where Democrats are a little upset that he's he's kind of globbed on to this uh, topic and, you know, that Biden's not necessarily owning that issue as much as they would like. But that's mm -hmm. kind of a separate sort of aside um, to the debate itself. Mm -hmm. I, I think Abby, 100 percent, uh, put her finger on the reality. I think he was there. And I think you saw that in the way Ramaswamy became the focal point of the debate because he's, mm -hmm. he was there as a proxy for, you know, maybe he's, maybe he has some notion that he could be selected as Trump's vice president, but he, whether, whether that's a, what he's seeking or whether it's realistic or not, set that aside. He was a proxy for Trump there. And, uh, you know, people attacked him. It's a little bit easier to attack him than it is to attack Trump in the party at the moment, but he was the Trump shadow in that debate, and, <laughs> and it was mm -hmm. uh, it was quite visible. Right, the shadow. We will see if there's a version of that next week uh, as this next debate looms. So many 
strange events on the calendar, a <laughs> looming shutdown, <laughs> uh, another one of these debates without Trump, but with Trump, it's um, it's a weird time. Well, thank you both for the insights. I, I love the point of view from both of you, John and Abby. Thanks again. Thanks so much. You bet. Abigail Tracy of Vanity Fair, uh, John Harwood of Duke University, uh, host of the forthcoming podcast, Bedeviled. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Gabe Caroga. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. And look me up. Send me an email anytime. I'm at bstelter at gmail.com. And your feedback helps inform and give ideas for future episodes of this podcast. We'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.